HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If your food media diet is fueled by HRN, become a monthly donor today. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome chef and restaurateur Nancy Oakes. In today's episode, we'll talk to Nancy about positive kitchen culture, the value of hospitality, and we'll hear Nancy's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We've talked about how much Julia respected chefs, particularly their ability to inspire, delight, and nourish us. In episode 130, we talked about the power of collaboration to create wonderful dining experience. Today, we're expanding on the idea of how great collaboration relies on its collaborators feeling they're valued and able to thrive. Julia loved to collaborate, and as a great collaborator, she was also a good mentor. She instinctively knew how to lift other people up, Maybe it's because she was a people person, but as many fans can attest, Julia respected everyone. So many of our Julia moments highlight remembrance of Julia at restaurants, heading straight into the kitchen to talk to the chef, but also the dishwasher. She knew it was a team effort, and to have a great team, everyone matters. Someone who shares these Julia values, particularly in creating a positive kitchen culture, is Chef and restaurateur Nancy Oakes. Her reputation stands in stark contrast to the Me Too movement's exposure of the prevalence of misogynistic and abusive cultures in restaurant kitchens. Known as a pioneer of oat American cuisine, Nancy's been a defining figure in Bay Area dining for decades. A Northern California native, she rose to prominence as the chef at La Avenue in San Francisco, 
before opening Boulevard with Pat Coletto in 1993. Nancy began her career in the front of the house before joining the kitchen at San Francisco's The Barnacle and then leading it at Pat O'Shea's. She has received numerous local, national, and international accolades and awards, including being recognized by the James Beard Foundation as Best Chef in California in 2001. The James Beard Foundation also named Boulevard an outstanding restaurant in the United States in 2012. Nancy opened Prospect Restaurant with Pam Mazzola and Kathy King in San Francisco's South of Market and Brocadero neighborhood in 2010. Most recently, she joined the team reopening San Francisco's historic Tosca Cafe, a fixture in its North Beach neighborhood for more than 100 years. Tosca Cafe closed in 2019 in the wake of the sexual harassment allegations levied at its former owner. Nancy's commitment to the wider community includes decades of giving back by lending her time and energy cooking for a multitude of charitable events, including longtime support for Meals on Wheels San Francisco. Nancy joins us today to talk about her career as a chef and restaurateur and what it takes to create positive kitchen culture. Welcome to the podcast, Nancy. Oh, thank you. So your career path is a little bit different to maybe the restaurant chefs that people would be familiar about or seen a lot in the media. So I, I wanted to hear before we talk about kitchen culture specifically, how did you make the transition from front of house to running your own restaurant? Well, a, a front of the house job was the way I got through art school when my father politely suggested I might want to work a bit. <laughs> and so that a restaurant accepts almost anybody. <laughs> so that's where I uh, found employment, and it it turned out I loved it. Uh, I loved being in the front of the house and helping people, and it it's, keeps you busy. You get to do many, many different things. So I really hadn't planned. I had planned to go from that and into some sort of an art career. But uh, I think somewhere along the way, uh, I ended up loving being in the restaurant more than art, which I kind of set aside, really. Mm. Uh, and probably why I was drawn to cooking, because that has more of a craft, mm. uh, tra- transformative it is creative. I don't want to call it an art. I think of it more of a craft. But mm-hmm. uh, So that's how I made the transition. In the transition, somebody offered us a fabulous opportunity at the Barnacle, which was this kind of a terrible little bar on the waterfront in San Francisco. And uh, it had a full kitchen that was fantastic. And they said, just cook food and we don't want to, we don't need rent. We don't need anything. Just do what you'd like to do. I, so it went from a hobby cook to a professional cook, uh, which um, is a little unusual, I think. I would say, especially for someone who's ended up winning James Beard Awards and numerous things and setting, you know, a very high bar as a San Franciscan, you know, in one of the toughest food cities in the world. So literally, you have no classical training in a cooking school, or even in the typical apprenticeship, like rising up the line in a restaurant. Right. That's correct. Yes. That's like uh, almost unheard of. I'm not trying to think of another person who did that's amazing. Um, well, it, uh, you know, you, I worked in very good restaurants in the front of the house. Um, and you learn a lot about service, food, hospitality, what food looks like. I come from a 
super enthusiastic uh, cooking family where we're one of those families that talked about what we're having for the next meal while we're eating that meal. Mm. Uh, and all of the sisters, my mother's sisters were fantastic, uh, amazing cooks. So, you know, part of being able to cook is having a palate created in a positive way where, um, where, you know, what good food tastes like. It sounds a little odd, but you have to to try to when you try to cook for people, you can't do it with a history of eating bad food, really. (laughs) Well, well, Julia sort of did, but she went through a lot more training. It it seems like with your background, it means you can skip the the sort of uh, the the learning curve it needs to bring your palate up to speed. Well, it was a very modest beginning and it was a different time. Now everybody is judged so quickly. You know, this I was in, if you will, a San Francisco backwater where San Francisco has always been supportive. They'll drive anywhere for good food. If they've heard that food is good and reasonably priced and uh, they'll go for it, They, uh, which is very helpful. And so we were sort of discovered by, believe it or not, Bill Graham's uh, roadies. Uh, the, mm. the restaurant was located very close to their sort of hub where they loaded up all the the music shows and those are the mm-hmm. guys that came over first and they loved it it was because it was with joanne um, a dear friend of mine who's the one who talked me into this uh opening a restaurant because i was actually having quite a good life working in the front of the house but uh we did it they loved it and the word spread so and it just sort of built from that and i don't think you can do that anymore Maybe in a pop-up. I don't. Pops are, pop-ups. I think are it would be harder. You'd have to do it in a town or city that wasn't so already competitive. Or, um, right. I, I think it was also you're talking about the removal of stakes. Like now with Eater and all different kinds of publications on top of every restaurant opening, like you were able to kind of. There were no expectations, right? That it be perfect or good or exciting. I got a learning curve. I got to cook the food. Basically, Joy and I cooked the food that our mothers cooked. That's what we served. I served. We served pot roast, strawberry shortcakes. I mean, it was, I made clam chowder. We were not uh, out to set a new culinary compass. We were just cooking the food that we loved. And uh, apparently other people liked it. So it worked out great for us. Uh, we got another great offer to come to a different bar. He sort of stole us away and gave us a better opportunity. That would be Pat O'Shea's. And uh-huh. from Pat, that's finally at Pat O'Shea's. We were we re, that we got a review, which I have a funny story for you if you want to hear it. If there's time, yeah, go. But I'll go. Okay, so Pat O'Shea's is a, a really a bar. It's a bar bar, um, a serious raucous bar at night, and well, we only cooked in the daytime. And so the owner of that bar had uh, coasters that said a Pat O'Shea's. We cheat tourists and drunks. So unbeknownst to me, um, unbeknownst to me, one of the partners got a request from Gourmet Magazine to send some information. And so he packed up the coasters that said we cheat tourists and drunks and a few other bar mementos and sent it off to Gourmet Magazine. And, you know, they never called back. <laughs> so that was that was the, the beginning. And then it was um, a wonderful uh, one of the food editors from the Chronicle who f- did review us uh, and sent people to us. and She was great. And then Patty Utterman reviewed us also. 
Mm-hmm. And that was when you started becoming known as a as a chef from from there, or had people paying yes. more attention? Yeah, I think you know it was it was really just ground up. It, it, just doing something that we love to do. We had fun doing it, and uh, it kind of propelled itself forward, and uh, there was a momentum. It, it next door to Pat O'Shea's, there was an empty space. I had really had enough of the sports bar. So we agreed that I could have the space next door and that became L'Avenue. And then Mm. we really did get taken more seriously and reviews started. And uh, that's when I got a phone call from a friend in Los Angeles who said that uh, she had met Pat Coletto and he was telling everyone he was opening a restaurant with me in San Francisco. And I kind of said, well, that's interesting. I've never met Pat Coletto. But I guess since you did, he's a persuasive uh, fellow. uh, Well, what happened was, you know, San Francisco is a small town in its own way. And uh, so a friend of mine went to the same chiropractor as he went to, and they set up a dinner, and we decided to open the restaurant. But that's, you know, it's a really innocent time. You know, before it became so deadly serious as it is now, and... uh, you know. Well, let, let's go from there, because I, before I talk to you about about how you created and create positive kitchen culture, I think it's also helpful, as you were just talking about your career, because I think there's an underlying aspect for chefs and particularly for restaurateurs where you're doing either both or very involved is how you approach hospitality and what your philosophy. And I think you were talking about that even going back to the barnacle with the home cooking. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about what your approach to or how you think about what good hospitality is or should be? Well, it is trying to hit the sweet spot uh, between being, uh, you don't want to be overly friendly. I don't like that either. But at the same time, you don't want it to be stuffy. It's trying to be uh, welcoming and accommodating and being excited about somebody coming to dinner. You have to try to keep it fresh in your mind that these, uh, it helps to, you know, refer to them as guests instead of customers. I mean, there's little things you can do to remind yourself they're excited to come to dinner. You have to remain somewhat excited to have them in for dinner and think about how this is such, um, it's a, a real moment for them. If it's just getting together with friends and being able to relax and talk around the table where wonderful things usually happen. Uh, I've always loved that part of it, that uh, barriers come down when people eat together. Uh, So you have to, I've always tried to keep my core of how I uh, feel about it alive and try to instill that in others. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So actually, that's a great segue into just kind of talking about... um, what I was going to frame is your tenants of positive kitchen culture. And I'm sure this is something I'm invented for you and not, not something you run around saying, but, um, when it's something uh, I've been conscious, I've been conscious of it since the very beginning when, um, when I first started to cook in what I would call a real restaurant rather than the bar or the cafe was that I spent nine years working at one of San Francisco's great restaurants, um, on Knob Hill. And, worked for a man who was notoriously known as the worst person in the world to work for. And for some reason, you know, he either liked the job that I did, he left me alone and I wasn't tormented like every other employee. 
Mm. But in the process, and I stayed there for, you know, almost nine years. Uh, in the process, he actually, what do you call that thing where you do a silhouette of a, a, a face? I can't remember what it's called. I think it's, it's called a, a silhouette. I think it's called a silhouette. A silhouette. <laughs> so he, he, everything that he did, I was determined to do just the opposite. <laughs> so he's a great teacher. He was a great teacher. And just in, uh, it's not quite as black and white as that, but I, I just kept a mental note of things that I would, I promised myself I would never do. Like he could never, ever tell anyone or ask anyone to do anything without an insult attached to it. Like if you, if the person wore glasses, he would infer, he would almost call you four eyes and then say, are you blind? Can't you see that? He just couldn't help himself. And it just was awful to witness. And mm. yet he was the best host, the most beloved uh, maitre d' in San Francisco and took, he treated people like they were royalty, but the employees were just subjected to, uh, oh, everything had an insult attached to it. So I realized he didn't respect anybody. You know, he needed mm. the guest and the customer, but he had forgotten that he needed all of us. Mm. Uh, so, you know, if you just go, so one of the basic ones, and it's pretty obvious, is you have to maintain respect. Mm. And, and, and under pressure, it's not always that easy. Mm -hmm. Nobody's perfect. Uh, yes. But that was, and then I tried to, he would never listen to anybody. Nobody could tell him or try to explain anything. He would just cut everybody off. So, you know, it's trying to keep our channels of communication open, respect, at least listening to somebody else's ideas, working, trying to find some sort of consensus to make things work better. Um, there, there's nothing complicated about it. And then you try to pay people the best that you possibly can. And that's another, I see that that's on our docket to discuss about how things have changed forever. But that was always my goal was to be fair. Well, and certainly pay, right, fair pay and fair hours and, you know, accommodating working conditions are all part of, right, showing staff how they're valued. You can say it, but you have to show it, right? That's part of the reason. Well, but it's also amazing um, all those things are great, but actually people will do amazing feats if they're respected and listened to. It's not all money and it's not all, it, it, it's not, it's more complicated than that. And sometimes just being valued and the respect can go a long way and, in, in trying it, to keep it good. Now, how have you managed, because presumably over the years and, and now that you have, you know, different and more established and fine dining restaurants, have I'm sure as you've grown, you've had to hire people that didn't come up working with you from the very start. Have you had to sort of do a training program or does everyone just sort of hear from you when they start about this is the way we work here? How have you been able to kind of indoctrinate people who might have come from a, from a more stereotypical, more negative culture? Well, I think if you're lucky or if you work at it, um, probably a combination of both, you create, you start with a core group of people that have worked with you. And that's always been my case. I've always brought people forward with me and mm -hmm. I tend to promote from within. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have everything going for you, you create a workplace culture 
that actually always is constantly giving that information to new people coming into it. And either it appeals to them or it doesn't work out and they don't fit in and then they just take themselves out of it. But you want to have this culture that is constantly reinforcing your values. And so it means that you can't have any stinkers working behind your back to, um, you know, backstab people or be disrespectful or, you know, that takes some effort making sure that you've got your eyes on that. I'm sure you know that once you're the boss or the owner, people behave differently around you. So you don't Mm. always see everything that's going Mm. on in the backwaters, but Mm. So I let the culture try to do it, it the work for me, so I'm not having to uh, inform and give introductions like that. So it sounds like some of it is leading by example, but I also assume that means that you also have to be the bad guy at times with, with asking people to leave who are not kind of conforming or kind of getting it or or willing to follow the. Is I feel pretty fortunate. I've, I, I've had to fire very few people. Usually they take themselves out uh, before I before I get to that. They realize they don't fit in. Um, and I do tend to place myself uh, in, the, in the fray. So I work in the kitchen with everybody. I do, if stuff needs to be swept up, I sweep it up, you know, Hopefully someone comes and rescues me when I'm doing that. Uh, but it's kind of, I'm much more comfortable rather than being a dictator. I just kind of push from within. Wow. Well, I would say that's so lead from example. So everything yeah. you and your partners with the restaurant, and it sounds like you partnered or you continue to partner with people who are like-minded. So it just sort of flows naturally. Yeah, it does seem to. I mean, once in a while, I can't believe I'm having to repeat uh, the same stuff after, what is it? I don't know, 38, 40 years of doing it, but it, it, it is. And, and one of the things I enjoy is every generation, you know, you're always hiring young people in a restaurant. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you hire all ages, but you have an influx of young people. And so each generation is different and they have their own, uh, opinion and kind of their own how they want to be treated and how they want to be dealt with so that's challenging but I like it I mean I feel like it's kept me young too you know well and it also seems like and be interested because I'm getting sadly farther and farther away from it but working with very young people which restaurants often are someone's first job in some senses are coming and having been raised in a more egalitarian less doggy dog kind of least educational or family environment. Do you think that's actually, I think for some employers, work ethic wise, it has a little bit of a downside, but have you found that actually helps in terms of their mutual respect for each other in, in restaurants or it's, it's so individual you couldn't say? No, no, I think you can, um, no, it, it, you get a good grip on it. I mean, I, I hate to say, I used to say, I don't say this anymore. I used to say the perfect uh, restaurant employee is the adult child of an alcoholic. And it's because, <laughs> which is, okay, sounds just why? horrible. But can I explain that? Probably? Yes, please. So, I don't I don't get it. So go ahead. Uh, you don't get it? Okay. So if, you, um, if you've made it through that kind of chaos, 
Uh-huh. You're equipped to, it's like when you're in that family and everything is going bonkers, in order to survive, you create a way that you can steady the boat, make it okay, keep it to going on. And in a way, uh, a person who goes to work in something like a kitchen needs the ability, no two days, today will not be like tomorrow. Every day will be different. Mm-hmm. Even though you're doing roughly the outline looks the same, how you get there will be different every day and you'll encounter so many different things. There's I so get many it. Staying the contact. course through adversity. It's someone yes. who's used to that and, and never knowing what's going to be thrown at them. So you just get used to handling it. So, but if, the so, person <laughs> that's lived a chaotic life is kind of, and has been successful and survived it is actually great. So what I do also, you what so, do you say now when you've decided that you can't say that anymore? Now I say, give me the adult child of a single mother. <laughs> okay, a little lighter on the. It sounds the uh, yeah. But what it is is that that person understands uh, work and pitching in and helping and being able to empathize with somebody's uh, trials and tribulations they've had to put the napkins on the table or get the silverware out of the drawer or you know it it has prepared them um yeah it's someone who hasn't had it easy for whatever reason is more prepared for the unpredictability and chaos of a of a restaurant it's also just naturally used to has been raised to pitch in and that's what it takes yeah uh All right, after the break, we'll be back with more about creating positive kitchen culture with Chef Nancy Oakes. Stay with us. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. You may have noticed that we have a whole new look. We also launched a new website that's going to make your listening easier and more enjoyable than ever before. HRN is the original food podcast network. And as we enter a new chapter in our 12-year history, I want to ask you to invest in HRN for the long haul. If you rely on this show to fuel your food media diet, become a monthly sustaining member today. Our members keep the voice of America's food movement alive and kicking. Your donations support this podcast along with 40 other shows on Heritage Radio Network. Your contribution helps give HRN the security we need to stay on the airwaves throughout the pandemic, and your continued support is allowing us to reopen our studio. Plus, we like to give our regular members special treatment. So sign up to become a monthly donor and get access to our secret menu. We've gathered together exclusive discounts and offers from some of your favorite food and beverage brands. So you get to enjoy insider pricing on goods that will ship right to your door. Join our community of monthly donors and special deals will come your way throughout the summer. So can you make a gift of five or $10 a month? It'll show me and our whole team at HRN how much this podcast and food radio in general means to you. Become a monthly sustaining member today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Nancy Oakes from San Francisco's Boulevard and Prospect 
restaurant about creating positive restaurant kitchen culture. So Nancy, you were talking about sort of, we were just talking about your hiring philosophy and how you kind of identify the, the ideal candidates. Oh, you can edit that out. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think it's, it's, it's fascinating. I assume that there are exceptions to that, that it, 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 we're leaving out all the creativity and people who really uh, have a desire to express themselves, especially in the kitchen. I mean, just and be creative and get to work with great ingredients and uh, and have a you have to be a bit of a people pleaser as well, you know, that you want to just make it a perfect experience for people. Well, and I think you would acknowledge there are people from very stable upbringings who are can be hard workers, and some you can often identify that just from what experience that they've had before, their attitude that, oh, this person just enjoys, some people just enjoy working. Yeah, I actually come from a very stable uh, background. My parents were married for 60 years. No, I mean, so. Yeah, I thought you wanted to share that, that you were not self, <laughs> self-identifying as, as, a, yeah. as a victim. Yeah. So would you say that in talking about all of this, do you feel like it's been a process of like continuous refinement or do you feel like this aesthetic that you valued and recognized from the beginning and just, you know, maybe also working in a sports bar gave you a lot of like, well, or you're talking about the maitre d' who you trained under. Do you feel like you just set the tone early on and just kept with it? Or has it been something that you feel like, oh, I really have to stay on top of it or it will subvert itself? Well, you do because things have changed. Uh, things there, and I'm not saying that you have to get into the whole changes that have transformed in uh, in human resources. And I mean, if people going back to something that you touched on, if people haven't realized that you have to uh, treat this younger generation, well, the last three generations really differently than say I myself could be treated and tolerated, uh, you are not going to have any employees because they simply won't tolerate it uh, and they'll leave. So it does need refinement. You have to keep up with what how people are thinking. Uh, you have to be very careful now to respect people. Even being overheard saying something can get you into you know deep water uh, and offend people. And so it, it, it is a, it's a tighter rope to walk. And I don't think it's a bad thing, actually. I think being held accountable and staying on that message is really important to running, um, a, a good workplace. I mean, I wanted to be a good employer. That was one of my goals when I went into business for myself was to try to be a, have delicious food, but also to be a good employer to the best of my ability. And, you know, I, I think some people never take to managing people. Um, I kind of like managing people. Uh, it, if I used to play team score sports in school. I tended to end up as the captain of the team. So maybe that says something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, but, but, but naturally, right. Not, not by, not by just someone saying else I'm to get king. to the position. Yeah, yeah. Not saying I'm the boss. I'm the owner. You can't play the owner card. That doesn't work. That's not a good card. Well, I wanted to, on that note, wanted to give you the opportunity because I'm sure that having had to close your restaurants or deciding to close your restaurants uh, during the height of the pandemic had disastrous um, impacts on on your staff and and also on your this sense of community and work family that you created. 
So I, I just wanted to talk to you or hear from you a little bit about that must have been, I assume, incredibly difficult after all of this cultivation. Yeah, that was that ranks pretty much up there as the worst thing I've ever had to do. Um, everybody understood, of course, but it just went on for so much longer than anybody thought it would and is still going on. I, I, I think we're sinking into it again. Mm. Uh, so I did try, there are things that I did for a core group. You know, we got everybody on, um, we got everybody on unemployment. We, we all worked with them so that they got, uh, they got that fast. Then we got the, you know, the help from the, you know, the payroll programs. So we were able to say, uh, pay their insurance. We were able, you know, just throw out some sort of life preservers. And then we said, okay, we're going to do to go food. And then we pivoted to, uh, outside dining. And then we did outside dining and to go food. And then we did inside dining out. We, we tried everything. And then mm. finally we just kind of stopped and decided to, uh, remodel and then reopen when this kind of looked better. But and that does was that mean hard? Does that mean you've ended up having to disband a lot of team members who probably aren't going to either want to come back or be able to come back, or it's too soon to tell? Or well, I have that kind of strange thing, which I think isn't so typical. That I do have people who've worked for me for thirty years, twenty five years, twenty years. Uh, some of them retired; they took the opportunity to retire. Mm -hmm. um, other people moved away. Um, many that I would have liked, would love to have back have moved away. Mm. Um, and, and then we were able to hold on to kind of a small core that hopefully it can help me reassemble another kitchen culture and dining room culture, that there's enough of them to uh, get the message out that what we like to be like, if that makes any sense. So we were sort of made some desperate attempts to hold on to people. And then the payroll program really helped because you could just put people on the payroll, um, which we do have now. We have people waiting to return when we reopen Boulevard. But wow. they're being paid now. And what's your, so Tosca Cafe is open. Mm-hmm. And when, do you have an exact timeline yet on Boulevard and Prospect reopening? I'm looking at uh, September 8th for Boulevard, which mm -hmm. will have a very new look, although it has the same bone structure. It has. So in the process of all of this, I have a new partner and Pat Coletto is no longer my partner. Um, so I've partnered with sort of a, a, a young financial guy who that's another whole story about how he moved in upstairs and then found out I was thinking about closing and came downstairs and said, no, you're not closing. So amazing. Uh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it was amazing. And, uh, then I expect prospect to be open the 28th, but we might open just kind of a big, we might open it as a more of, it has a very big kind of fun bar. We might open bar lounge, some food, and then get to the rest of the more serious food later just to get open. But, but for those and, who are listening and are encouraged or know someone who wants to work at a positive restaurant culture, you are hiring. 
Oh, yes, yes. We are definitely, we haven't started posting, but we're just uh, talking about that today and see if anybody ever wants to work in this business again, because certainly when you read every article, it sounds like they don't. Um, so we'll, well see. Well, let's actually talk about that for a second, because I know you, you started to mention it and you've been outspoken about it, that, you know, for better or for worse, San Francisco is a beloved place. And, um, but the downside of that is everyone, at least at one point, wanted to live there and move there. So it has also become horrendously expensive to live, to run a business, and certainly to be a restaurant employee at the usual restaurant wages. So I was curious to get your take on what you feel has to change or, or maybe you're already changing to, to survive in, in, the, in that environment. Well, San Francisco had already made a lot of moves with its minimum wage and mandatory insurance, and uh, which I always insured people from the very beginning. I always thought that was very important, uh, especially younger people who don't know that they need insurance and than they do. Uh, mm. So that's always been one of my core values. But so San Francisco has the advantage that it actually provides a decent minimum wage, but you can't pay minimum wage anymore. Um, I think everybody's trying to maneuver around figuring out how to take what has been gratuity money and spread it around, which had a lot of legal control on it. Mm. So you couldn't, it's not like you could take somebody's uh, money. So there's, you're going to see a lot of wrangling and every restaurant seems to have a different policy. They've put on a service charge. They've done, uh, you know, that, that's going to take some time to settle where that's going to finally come to rest. But if you do create um, equity between the back and the front, then it come, becomes a good and fair job for everyone. Uh, we'll see how I have my ideas of how. Are you someone who thinks that the no tipping, at least concept, is is a better one? Or, I mean, I think you were also pointing out, just to clarify for listeners, that I think a lot of customers or restaurant guests don't aren't familiar, and why would they be necessarily, that there are a lot of legal hurdles to even a restaurant deciding to have a different policy, like there are limitations state to state on whether you can pull tips, or if you do pull tips, how you can then distribute them, right? It is, It's uh, and every state is different. Uh, and there's still a couple of states, I think, Maybe there's only four or five left where, and these are the ones that make the news all the time, where you have a uh, a tip credit. In other words, if you are if you receive tips, you can be paid this incredibly low wage. Uh, mm-hmm. Like some states yeah. are still like two dollars and thirteen cents an hour mm-hmm. if you make mm-hmm. tips. They're supposed to make up the difference. There's a lot of having so many different policies. It, people are a bit confused, for sure. Um, I do know that um, maybe because I come from the front of the house, I have a slightly different perspective on um, the, the front of the house service staff that, you know, we are all human and we're incentivized by people rewarding us. So there is, you don't want to really take all of that away. I don't think anybody has a dream to become a server. I just don't think that's where that's coming from. Mm. So uh, doing it, uh, this this is like a three-week conversation. We shouldn't yeah. even go. 
go here. Anyway, <laughs> yes, it is very confusing, but I, I, I hope to keep the front of the house incentivized, and yet we'll find out a sharing method. Uh, one thing that will change is people's eyes are going to pop out at what dining out and fine dining is going to cost. That will be the thing that changes. The pandemic will change that, and this it will the push for a fair wage is going to change that forever. Even even in minimum wages now, almost you have to look at it as sort of um, the new form of slavery. And I know that sounds severe, mm-hmm. but in some states where the minimum wage is still like seven twenty-five or eight dollars, I mean, mm-hmm. basically. And if you're basing your business depending on a slave, this is not it's it's not sustainable. It's yeah, not I mean good. maybe. Nobody's... I was going to yes, say maybe sorry. the more woke language is that the equality, the the way the restaurant business is modeled financially, and it varies by state, but the overall model is still based on being able to pay below market weight rates for labor that is yes. requiring more and more people to be skilled in places where you cannot possibly afford to live a decent living. And I think more and more restaurateurs, actually even ones who aren't so um, aware of positive culture, just recognize that. And, and then, right, I feel like that's the biggest takeaway from the pandemic is that will be changing and we still haven't really seen the the full outcome of that pivot and which restaurants survive it. And, and also, I mean, for me, it's who can afford to go out to eat, who cannot. Is it going to just be left to uh, inexpensive fast food and super high-priced dining out spots? Is it, and there with nothing in between for other people who love to go out for delicious food and all the reasons we love to go out. Um, I also think that the pandemic has made people appreciate what a good deal dining out has been. After you, after, well, I don't know about you, but after you've cooked at home and cleaned up after <laughs> your, I mean, day after day, you're just like, can't we go out to dinner? <laughs> no, I think it's been big, good for both. It's what Julia all warned us about. You better learn how to cook because you never know what's going to happen and you might have to cook for yourself. But then after doing it for a long time, you're like, oh, I really appreciate restaurants. I need a break. But there was also no way to get out of the cleanup, which was always my, you know, I'm trying to angling to like, so even if you had stuff delivered or if you uh, took takeaway, they were still, are you going to eat it out of the box? And then, throw, no, I wasn't going to do that. There was always a cleanup. There was always, there was always work, right? There's always work. Absolutely. All right. We're going to take a last break. And afterwards, we'll hear Nancy's Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, Tweet us at Julia Child JCF. Let us know what you think about today's show. Have you seen the trailer for the new documentary about Julia's life and legacy? It's out now, and we put a link in the show notes. But wait, there's more. We're bringing you a further sneak peek as we celebrate Julia's birthday. Join the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, me, and Julia's great nephew, Alex Prudhomme, in conversation with the documentary's directors, Julie Cohen and Betsy West the Oscar-nominated filmmakers of RBG. You can participate from wherever you'll be on August 15th. Make sure you're registered at sbce.events. Stay with us. We'll be right back. What does Inside Julia's Kitchen mean to you? 
regular listeners know they enjoy it and really appreciate what Heritage Radio Network brings to you every week and across the network. A reminder that it's Heritage Radio Network's annual fundraising season, and you can designate Inside Julia's Kitchen when you go to heritageradionetwork.org donate and become a member. Please consider supporting us. As always, Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit food radio broadcasting and podcaster. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? Okay, from Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Nancy, what's your Julia moment? Well, I have I have a lot of them actually over the years. Um, my husband uh, Bruce Adels was a great favorite of uh, Julia's, so I got to spend uh, a decent amount of time with her, and uh, I even got to meet her her sister from Sausalito, who is more Julia than Julia in a way. She's taller than Julia, tells funnier jokes than Julia. That was a <laughs> to think that there were two of them out there was just unbelievable for me. <laughs> uh in their just their physical presence but my favorite time was julia came into boulevard and this was early days it's probably in the i don't know mid 90s maybe and she you know we get our fair share of very famous people and very recognizable people and they always attract attention and you know there's always a few people who want to go over and say hello or whatever's going on but when julia came in and got to her table before she sat down everybody in the restaurant and this is a year we were talking about 200 people probably, you know, or maybe at least 150 people all stood up. Nobody said anything. It didn't, it was just completely from within them. They stood up and the, the whole crowd started applauding and slightly moving toward her. And it was the most amazing thing to see. And she was just as gracious and fabulous as she always had been. It was just what a big person she was. Well, that's amazing. I think that's such a great moment, too, because it's so reflective of what I said at the beginning and then what you said about how you developed it and, and that that sense of shared value. And and I think people did that right because they felt respected by Julia. And in return, they so respected what she was doing. The love that that crowd poured out towards her was like nothing. I've, you know, I've never seen it for anybody else. It was all Julia. Well, that is a great Julia moment. Well, thank you so much, Nancy, for joining us and sharing um, your story and and particularly about positive kitchen culture, because I think a lot of folks could um, learn a lot. Well, we'll have to we'll have to attack it again sometime. There's work to be done for sure. Well, and keep us updated on on your rebuilding process, please. Well, you have to come in and see Boulevard. It's going to be very different. It's going to be pretty. I would love to. That's a promise. (laughs) check. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. So for the latest from Chef Nancy and about her restaurant reopenings, it's at Oaks underscore Nancy, at BLVDSF, at Tosca Cafe SF, and at Prospect SF on Instagram, and at Prospect SF, and at BLVDSF on Twitter. 
and uh, they are posting about their hirings on their social media feed. So you can go there to pursue if you're interested. And as always, follow the foundation. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The latest on the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience and to register for the August 15th event is sbce.events. And you can follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks as always to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network today was Armin. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.